This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome, everyone. My name is Professor Stephanie Malia-Holm. Uh, I am an assistant professor of transnational Italian studies in the Department of French and Italian. And I'd like to thank you all for being here this evening, and I hope you enjoyed Death in Venice on the big screen. Uh, I would like to uh, welcome our guest, Professor Juan Ramon Resina from Stanford University, uh, who has just published a book, uh, Lucchino Visconti, Filmmaker and Philosopher with Bloomsbury in 2022. And uh, to begin, Professor Resina, could you tell us, uh, set the context for us of how, uh, where does this film fit in with Lucchino Visconti's oeuvre and... Um, Tell us a little bit about him as a director. Well, first of all, let me begin by thanking uh, uh, the Carsey Wolf Center for their kind invitation, as well as the Department of Italian Studies and my colleague, Professor Holm. Um, it's a real pleasure to be here, and it's a double pleasure to, to be here on the occasion of the projection of Death in Venice, which is uh, one of my favorite, if not the favorite movie um, you know, in the long career of, uh, of uh, cinema uh, experiences. Um, the context of Visconti cinema, I'll try to be very brief because I know that there will be other uh, issues that we want to discuss, but um, uh, Visconti is uh, usually uh, credited with having uh, launched the uh, style named Neorealism in Italy with a film uh, titled Ossessione uh, in 1943. Uh, you may uh, be familiar with this term, Neorealism, other or at least another important uh, representative is uh, Roberto Rossellini, uh, the famous film uh, uh, Roma Città Aperta from 1945, so end of the World War II. And then other names like Vittorio De Sica, a lot of people know, uh, The Bicycle Thief, uh, and uh, a bunch of other directors from this period that turn their attention to uh, actuality, to, to things as they look, and particularly with a keen uh, observation of the working classes. Uh, Visconti produced yet another very famous film uh, in this style, uh, La Terra Trema, which is based on, on a 19th century uh, novel, a, uh, a realistic uh, novel. Uh, uh, the Italian title is In Malavoglia uh, by uh, uh, an, an author named Verga. Uh, uh, and uh, what he does uh, is, is quite interesting. What he does is um, he goes to Sicily and uh, films the story in a fisherman's village without uh, a cast of real actors. So he gets all these people from the village who are poor people, poor uh, fishermen, um, to act, and he asks them to act spontaneously as they usually are in life. Uh, so it's an interesting combination of a film which has uh, a story, a story that, that uh, pre-exists, uh, the, the, the filming, and yet um, the actors are not acting out the story, but basically representing their own lives, representing themselves. Um, and to add uh, realistic value to this, um, to this uh, portrayal of that society, um, they don't speak Italian. They speak in their Sicilian language, which is or was, I suppose, nearly incomprehensible to, to Italians from the mainland. So that uh, uh, is one of the primordial, one of the most interesting experimentations in neorealism. But after that film, Visconti turns to, uh, to a different type of filmmaking. And uh, 
gradually becomes uh, uh, engaged and I, I would say still continues to work on a sort of a realistic platform, realistic basis, but turning his attention away from these working classes uh, to the aristocracy. And at this moment, uh, some of the critics begin to say, well, you know, he has betrayed the, uh, the social uh, uh, commitment and so on and so forth. And because of the lavish style of his recreation of these aristocratic environments, as you have seen uh, in the Hotel de Verne in, in uh, Death in Venice, um, uh, he's considered to be uh, a decadent uh, filmmaker. That is a, uh, an, an adjective a qualifier that sticks to him um, and that certainly bothered him, but at some point he became almost cynical about it. You know, once uh, uh, a critic alluded to this by saying, well, you know, talked about him as being an aestheticist, and he said, he got him short, and he said, well, go ahead and say it, and in decadent, that's what you mean. But, um, and then he uses the, the word decadence and says, but decadence is not what you mean by it. It's not, it's not a moral um, uh, a judgment but it's rather an artistic style. And then he uses this term of reference for his decadent style, no one less than Thomas Mann, the author of the uh, short uh, story, the novella Death in Venice. And he says, you know, if that's your point of reference, it's fine with me. Um, so, <laughs> um, and the other interesting thing to say about the context of his cinema is that in the 60s um, and early 70s, when uh, there's a whole new type of cinema coming out of Europe, art house cinema, of course, uh, uh, namely the Nouvelle Vague, uh, represented by somebody like Jean-Luc Godard, uh, Visconti is not interested. He doesn't follow the trend and continues to produce this sort of uh, realistic uh, recreations of um, uh, aristocratic societies or high bourgeois societies um, undauntedly. Um, and so he, critics of the time, critics oftentimes follow the trends and the fashions, uh, at some point considered him to be more or less obsolete, artistically or stylistically obsolete. Um, but I think that as time goes by, uh, his cinema is certainly vindicated and uh, certainly much more watchable than some of those experiments that were taking place in the 60s and 70s. <laughs> That's, uh, thank you for that. I, I'm, I'm interested, as you write in your book, this idea of decadence was sort of an organizing principle, particularly of Visconti's later films and the German trilogy. Mm-hmm that you analyze in the book. Could you tell us more about this idea of decadence and Visconti's interpretation to it in relation to cinema as well as his own personal history? Okay, that's a lot of... (laughs) That's a lot. (laughs) Um, Especially beginning with with the film Senzo, um, which is a film uh, from the 1950s, 1959, I think. probably wrong by one or two years. Um, this is a turning point in, in his uh, filmography. Um, he already shows us, he places the story in Venice, so there's a kind of uh, prelude to his later mm-hmm. film. Um, and um, uh, immediately the film begins with a, an unforgettable um, uh, scene uh, in the Opera House of Venice, in La Fenice, uh, during the presentation, or the, the performance, rather, of um, uh, a Verdi opera, Il Trovatore. And that uh, film uh, already marks this turnaround towards these fancy environments, um, locating uh, the problems, the drama that takes place within uh, the aristocratic class well inside or in the middle of uh, an interesting or an important or decisive 
uh, historical period for Italian history, namely the Risorgimento and uh, uh, the fights, the struggles for Italian unification. Um, in, in historical terms, uh, the centerpiece or the, the original intention was to uh, foreground uh, an important battle that was a defeat, a severe defeat mm-hmm. for the Italian army, uh, namely the Battle of Custosa. Um, and I think that that is the moment when he turns uh, uh, his lens inward to this uh, historical, the roots of the historical, rather the historical roots of the present moment, of his present, and links the, uh, as he sees it, the decadence of traditional middle class or upper class European values, namely humanistic values, the deterioration of those values um, links them to the decay of his own class. He was by birth an aristocrat coming from an extremely uh, highly positioned family. Um, the Viscontis, uh, you know, one of his ancestors had been a condottiero, you know, one of these um, uh, strong men uh, uh, that ruled ruthlessly uh, in the city of Milan. And, uh, in fact, that uh, ancestor had basically funded um, the construction or part of the construction of the cathedral in Milan, you know, a very important uh, piece of architecture. So his family was really, I mean, uh, very, very um, uh, ingrained in the high or the highest level of Italian uh, society. Uh, Lucchino himself, the director, uh, used to be sort of a playmate. He, he was friends with uh, the king of Italy, Vittorio Emanuele uh, uh, III, uh, the one who uh, lost the monarchy to fascism. Um, so, so we're talking about a, a very high level. And somebody who at some point, and I think because of historical events, uh, realized that his class basically was doomed. He was one of the last representatives of that aristocracy and the recipient of that extremely uh, select education that allowed him to then uh, uh, go out in several directions. Cinema uh, is the one that he's mostly remembered for, but he was also a very very keen and intelligent opera producer. He produced a number of operas in uh, La Scala, and something that is not so well known, he was also the discoverer of artistic talent. He was a great promoter and supporter of no less than Maria Callas, the famous the fam- mm-hmm. opera singer. Um, a tyrannical uh, director in many ways. He made his actors and actresses suffer because he tried to extract always the best that they could do. Mm-hmm. And in the case of Callas, well, he made her lose a lot of weight because um, he told her, look, you know, you cannot represent La Traviata uh, with all of those extra pounds. So... Uh, you know, he put her through a severe diet, and she actually became the slim, elegant figure that everybody knows her for. Um, he was a perfectionist. He was somebody who would simply uh, not cut any corners. He would not uh, concede anything uh, in terms of the, um, the needs for an extravagant, if you will, uh, form of realism that went so far as to, uh, for instance, in The Damned and in La Caduta Degli Dei, the first film in the trilogy, the German trilogy, um, to have uh, first-class wine to be drunk by the by the actors, because it represented a you know a class, a a a family that was at the top of the um, German uh, German society, namely um, 
the uh, basically it's the Krupp family, so the, the you know the famous or infamous uh, makers of weapons uh, that served uh, the Second Reich during World War II. So this extraordinarily rich family could not be represented by actors sipping cheap wine. It had to be really good wine, or um, he installed um, uh, wooden uh, floors, wooden parquet. Uh, throughout the mansion where the film was uh, filmed because he wanted the microphones to pick up the steps of the boots of the Nazis, of the, of the uh, Gestapo uh, uh, and, and the SS when they come into the mansion. So the, the, cam- the, the microphone had to take up that resonance and so he spent the money uh, on this. Um, he insisted on having real uh, linen, high-quality mm-hmm. linen inside the drawers uh, although they were never opened during the film, but they had to be there to be convincing. So you can begin to sense you know, the particular attention to detail that this director mm-hmm. um, uh, managed to produce. And so I have extended myself so much that I think that I'll stop here because <laughs> otherwise we wouldn't get to other parts of the, of the, of the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a, that's a very interesting point you bring up about Lucchino Visconti being a perfectionist and how every shot and every detail in the film is completely premeditated. Yeah. And so turning our attention now to the film Death in Venice, uh, the first time I saw that film, I was very surprised to see that you hardly saw anything of Venice itself. And the, mm-hmm. and the film took place in the Hotel de Bain. And I was wondering if you could speak about the decision, Visconti's decision, to, to orient the film almost entirely within this restricted space. Yes. Um, there's a precedent, again, you know, mm-hmm. in the film that I mentioned earlier, Senzo, um, which begins inside the opera house in La Fenice, uh, gives us already this uh, internal look at the lavishness of um, aristocratic society in, in Venice. Um, but then also largely avoids the, the typical uh, and overused images of the city. Um, in that in Venice, we see some glimpses, right? I mean, at the very beginning, we see, uh, um, you know, as, the, as the steamboat approaches the city, uh, we see Venice in the background. Uh, uh, we see the island of San Giorgio Maggiore, and the, we catch sight of the Judeca. Um, and later, of course, there's that scene where uh, we see the inside of uh, Piazza San Marco, um, kind of uh, you know, interrupted by the columnate um, as he walks to the uh, to the cook to, to, to travel agency to exchange money. Um, but otherwise, um, it, it's very sparing. All right, it, he does. Visconti does not allow the camera to to remain uh, focused uh, intently on the architectural uh, beauties of the city, um, but rather gives us, in exchange, extremely long shots of the inside of the Hotel des Bains. So the question is, why does he do this? Right? I mean, the choice of the, of the hotel is more or less already given or pre-given by the fact that that was the very hotel where Thomas Mann mm-hmm. and his wife, Katia Mann, and, uh, and uh, 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 Thomas' uh, brother, Heinrich, another famous German writer, uh, spent about a week uh, in late, uh, late May, early June of uh, 1911, and that, you know, from that visit, um, uh, Thomas got the inspiration because he had sort of a similar experience in seeing this very beautiful uh, uh, Polish youth um, that, you know, that he got fascinated with, and uh, and then recreates some of that experience in his novella. 
So the Atelis Bans uh, was, was already more or less mandated um, by the uh, recreation of the story, um, the adaptation of the story, but also uh, there may also be a little bit of an autobiographical uh, aspect because uh, uh, Lucchino's family, when they stayed in Venice, when he was a child, they stayed in this very hotel. So there is also the possibility of this retrospective look. Um, what, um, what I find uh, interesting is that instead of doing, again, doing the, the easy thing, selling you uh, as viewers the, uh, you know, the already well-known uh, picture beauty of Venice, he entertains the camera. He, he spends a lot of time showing us those people, the guests at the hotel. Right? So he gives us a, an intense look of the kind of society that would have been um, the guests, the international guests, at uh, this very fancy hotel, fancy back then, it was uh, built around 1900, fancy at the beginning of the 20th century, and the kind of environment that it represented as a prelude right, to the decomposition of that very society mm-hmm. that will take place later, in fact, retroactively in The Damned, although The Damned was uh, filmed before that in Venice. The trilogy is somehow upside down. We have the most recent period, namely the period of Nazism in Germany, 1930s. In the middle, we have that in Venice, so placed around 1911. Um, and then the third film of the trilogy, uh, Ludwig, uh, goes back to the uh, 1880s. So it's like going backward um, in a process of excavation through images mm-hmm. of um, the causes, the root causes of European decadence. Okay? And what is obviously very interesting is that in doing this, he's doing a historical analysis of mm-hmm. basically a continental process at the same time as he's studying the evolution, the negative evolution, the decadent evolution of his own class and his own family. Okay? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's... Uh... That's great. So, so viewing Death in Venice within this trilogy of films is very important. And as you said, he adapted it from the Thomas Mann novel. So we have Visconti, we have Thomas Mann, and there's the presence of a third artist in the film, which is Gustav Mahler. And I was wondering if you could speak to how Visconti's film, Death in Venice, engages literature, music, and cinema to deliver its own message about art. Yes. So... Thomas Mann uh, writes a novel about uh, this man, Gustav Aschenbach, uh, who in the novella is not a musician, but a writer. Um, a writer that uh, has received uh, you know, awards from the, from the government, from the state, because he's written, in essence, within the framework of the interest of society um, in, uh, in, in Germany, um, in the early uh, 20th century. So somehow he uh, represents somebody who is a model for the state, somebody who as an intellectual supports the idea of the state. And uh, Thomas Mann presents him as someone who is extraordinarily, um, almost puritanical in his uh, uh, dedication, his devotion to work. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, we see this transplanted or adapted in the movie Although, of course, we have to guess a lot of it because instead of having a third uh, uh, person, a narrator, telling us all of this background, we have to uh, somehow extract it from the combination of sound, music, gest- uh, gesture, um, and images. Now, Thomas Mann um, said that during uh, his brief stay, uh, which 
as in the movie, we see we see Asimbach von Asimbach at the beginning of the movie um, uh, on this steamboat coming. Actually, well, he, he, we know that he's from Munich because when he says that he wants to go back, right? He wants to. He takes uh, uh, the train ticket to go back to Munich. So he's not coming from Munich by steamboat. He's coming from elsewhere. Actually, he's coming from uh, from Istria, that is uh, the, the coast in Croatia. Um, he's coming from uh, a harbor named Pola, and that was exactly the itinerary that the Mans did. They intended to spend their vacation on the Adriatic coast, and they were in Istria, and then they didn't like it there, and decided that that was the wrong destination. They took a boat in Pola, and then transferred themselves to Venice and to the Lido. Um, in this period, in this brief period, Thomas Mann says that they followed, that he followed anxiously the news in the, in the papers about the deteriorating health and eventually the death of Gustav Mahler, the musician. So Mahler is somehow already behind uh, his fascination um, with these experiences that he himself had um, in, in, in the Lido, in, in the Hotel des Bernes. And it, it's, it gets merged only... Of course, for a writer, uh, writing about a musician is not impossible. He did it, and he did a great job at it in Dr. Faustus, a long novel that he published at the very end of World War II. But uh, in this short novella, it would have been very, very hard to transmit everything that he transmits about the psychology and the transformation of this writer if it had been literally a musician. So he changes the profession, and what Visconti does is he restores the personality uh, of Asimbach to that of Gustav Mahler, that of, the, of a musician, and um, I think it's it was an ex, you know it was really a, 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 a stroke of genius to do so, because it would have been rather awkward. We see a little bit of that right in, in at these moments when there's a kind of a voicing off, but we know it's the voice in in Asimbach's brain uh, when he hears the voice of Alfred, his friend, who's always debating with him and accusing him of writing the wrong kind of music. Right? But these moments, um, if, if they had been more often, if they had been more frequent, um, would have made a very awkward film. Um, instead of that, what Visconti does, and does magnificently, is to pair the music, which is not extra diegetic, it's, it's, sort of, it's not background music, but it's music that's conveying constantly the emotions that take place mm -hmm. um, within the psyche of Aschenbach. And putting them in a dialectical relation with the fantastic performance of Dick Bogart, right? The gestures, the facial expressions that little by little convey to us not only his anxiety from the very beginning, right? I mean, we see him that something's troubling him when he's sitting um, uh, on, on the uh, uh, deck of the, of the ship, but as that anxiety intensifies, we detect the inner struggle that, uh, that man in the novella can tell us in words but that we have to somehow deduct from what we see and what we hear in the movie. Mm. Yeah, yeah and, and speaking of struggle, uh, in your book you write that the critiques about death in Venice that focus on the protagonist's pederastic urges mm. for the young boy Tazio entirely miss the point of the film, mm -hmm. really. And it, it's actually about the symbolic pursuit of an artist in search of beauty. Could you expand on that point? Yeah, yes. I mean, there's many cues for that, um, but um, you know, one uh, one that's hard to miss is that we are not presented with with uh, 
with the homosexual uh, character. You know, we're shown that he was a family man. He had a wife, daughter. He seemed to love both of them. Uh, there's no thought of him going to Venice in, in search of you know, some kind of uh, uh, gay relationship. None of that is there. Um, something happens. Something uh, uh, simply appears in front of him. Uh, he's been concerned about beauty. No? And we know that from already uh, the conversations that he has with his mm -hmm. friend, Alfred, friend or non-friend, I mean friend or enemy, we'll, we can talk about that, but the conversations that he has with Alfred turn around perfection, beauty. And the question, the debate between the two of them is that um, Alfred keeps telling him, you know, nonsense, none of this, uh, you know, you cannot achieve perfection mm -hmm. by effort, which was, you know, it was the belief of Askenbach that uh, if you're ascetic, if you just devote yourself to hard work, if you pursue beauty uh, with a tremendous renunciation of everything else, then you have a chance that perhaps you can accomplish this, you know, this whatever it is that we call beauty, this sense of perfection in the object. And Alfred's point is uh, nonsense, uh, you're absolutely wrong. Uh, you know, all, all that you get is cold, uh, uh, you know, a, a coldness of form that gets obviously rejected by your audience. Um, beauty is something you cannot create on demand. Beauty happens. Beauty is there spontaneously. It assaults you. And what we see uh, at the first side of Tazio, when Tazio is, and, and the camera does an interesting um, shift from each one of the family members. We see the girls, you know, their uh, you know, relative beauties, but then finally the striking image of Tazio. And we are watching along with him. We follow his gaze. That's his gaze going from one to the other of the members of the family. And finally, Tazio. And that's beauty that assaults him. And beauty happens to be incarnated in a young boy. For him, that is a surprise. He has not expected that. But he becomes defenseless. And he becomes defenseless because from the beginning, he's someone who's devoted to the pursuit of beauty. Mm -hmm. There's a point, and, and it is very much stressed in the novella, where there's a discussion of Phaedrus, namely mm -hmm. the dialogue by Plato, which is a dialogue precisely about the nature of beauty. Right? And it's a dialogue between Socrates and this young boy, this adolescent Phaedrus, who is in love with this ugly old man, namely Socrates, because Socrates, who was famously ugly, mm -hmm. apparently attracted uh, young Ephibes through the beauty of his soul, uh, so the beauty of the mm -hmm. intellect. And uh, there's a whole theory of, of love uh, that's presented in Phaedrus. I mean, all of those of you who have read Plato, you know that love really has one dialogue named uh, the Symposium, uh, where various characters discuss, you know, what is love. But in Phaedrus, um, love is presented um, as under the patronage of uh, the god Eros. So Eros um, is a helper of the soul that wants mm -hmm. to attain wisdom. Um, Eros is what draws one to the pursuit of beauty. And then there's a scale of ascension, an ascending scale, whereby uh, the, the soul, the, the intellect, um, is first of all attracted to beauty through the senses, but little by little climbs from the concrete to the abstract, to the general. And ultimately, uh, the wise soul uh, is capable of, uh, of uh, uh, visualizing, of, of looking at uh, 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 beauty as an idea. And so my contention is that what Askenbach really is after is that idea of the beautiful. 
But that idea of the beautiful, as Alfred keeps telling him, is not going to be created by your effort, by, by your, the force of your will, but it's going to be something that requires the presence of the, or the, the intervention of the senses and that will only be there against, even against your will, so despite of your will. Um, we can, if, if you want me to continue uh, you know, uh, on, on, along these lines, I would then say something about this relationship between the two, the two friends, but maybe you want to, to well, turn to something different. Let's come back to that. I wanted to, okay. to go a little deeper into these classical references and mm. the, the sort of what you've been speaking about are these are key themes in philosophy, truth, art, beauty, mm-hmm. the pursuit of beauty, the pursuit of mm-hmm. an illusion. And in the Thomas Mann novella, it's replete with classical references. And upon watching the Visconti film again, we saw these references uh, visually. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about what point is particularly, um, you mentioned Phaedrus, but there's Hermes Hermes that you mentioned in your book. And what purpose do these references serve? Right. So Hermes is... By the way, is is a divinity that is not mentioned in the novella, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I came to the conclusion that we really have Hermes at play here, and I'll, I can explain why I think so. But um, uh, in the novella, we have, I mean, the, the, the obvious uh, uh, philosophical background, besides uh, Plato, besides the allusion to Phaedrus, is Nietzsche, right? Nietzsche, uh, and in particular his uh, his first book, his book uh, as a young assistant professor, which was a a theory, you know, philology said that it was completely uh, off the track, but um, it has been extremely influential. Um, the book titled "The Birth of the Tragedy" or "The Birth mm-hmm. of Tragedy," um, where uh, Nietzsche presents all of um, uh, essential Greek uh, culture, but particularly through uh, the tragic, through tragedians, as a contest, a tension between two divinities, namely Apollo, which he says is the god of form. Um, and uh, the solar god, right? the god that would give us um, uh, uh, the, the, the stable uh, forms in, in um, uh, uh, visual forms, and then the opposite divinity, Dionysus, who is uh, the god of frenzy, the god of uh, um, uh, the god of uh, the tears down form, the god of impulse, uh, the god of uh, energy that cannot be dominated by the will. Right? So this opposition uh, uh, is not only a reference uh, to uh, the classical world where the, the, you know, the, stat- the statuary or the sculptural forms that we see uh, Tadzu adopting in the film clearly mm-hmm. res- respond right, to this predominance of form or this desire of form on the part of the, of the viewer, on the part of Asienbach, but also eventually we see the other side, you know, the dark side of this uh, uh, relation, um, which is represented theoretically, you know, in the theoretical positions, the theoretical statements of Alfred, of the friend. Alfred um, uh, is not really a character in the novella. Alfred mm-hmm. is uh, a recourse of um, uh, Visconti, um, who serves precisely to represent in more or less, you know, in diegetic and more or less realistic form, um, this tension between these two uh, polar opposites, these Nietzschean opposites, where Asimbach would be the Apollonian in, in that dichotomy, you know, the one who insists upon the stability of form. Um, 
the one who insists on the predominance of will, and then Alfred who says, no, it's the senses, and it's something you cannot control. Alfred, by the way, uh, is not only a a sort of a voice for the Dionysian, but is also what I would call a Mephistophelian character. He's a demonic character. Um, He is a character that constantly tries to draw, ask him, but to the recognition of the abyss. That Mm -hmm. which is the source of chaos, Mm -hmm. that which ultimately destroys and eliminates the individual aspect of the soul. And um, uh, in his letters, in his um, correspondence, particularly with um, uh, an analyst of myth, uh, Karl Kereni, who was a disciple of of Freud, um, Kereni wrote a book on Hermes, and uh, Thomas Mann recognizes, acknowledges that at a certain point he became more and more interested in mythology and religion, um, particularly later on, but clearly he was already in, in this track when he wrote Death in Venice. And they discuss the presence of um, a dark Apollo. So not the mm-hmm. Apollo that Nietzsche talks about you know, as being the sun god, but an Apollo that without ceasing to be Apollo, also included, also represented the dark aspects of mm-hmm. existence. And it's interesting that in the film we see, I mean, there's a couple of moments, right, that, that um, the camera shows us uh, this blurry sun arising mm-hmm. in the horizon. First, when the steamboat is arriving in Venice, that is already a sort of premonition of the direction that he has taken, that Asimbach has taken towards death. Mm-hmm. And then little by little, as he has more experiences of uh, what we call mystagogic experiences of being led, being uh, uh, re- directed in, in, this, uh, in this direction of a sort of revelation of beauty, but a revelation mm-hmm. that nonetheless is going to be lethal to him, we see time and again new moments in which uh, we get these cues. And one of them, um, interestingly enough, is uh, you've just seen it, uh, when after uh, stalking Tadzio uh, throughout the streets of Venice, uh, late at night or er- very early in the morning, he opens up the window of his room, looks out into the sea, mm-hmm. precisely at the moment when the sun just begins to mm-hmm. faintly illuminate the horizon. Um, you know, Apollo or the dark Apollo. It's that combination of darkness. Mm-hmm. It's still dark, and yet there's that light coming mm-hmm. up. And the last, the very last scene... Uh, when he dies, um, if you recall, the, 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 the sky in the background of Tadzio has, again, that same ambiguous mm-hmm. color, that sort of rosy, brownish, not clearly illuminated horizon. Um, but at this point, Tadzio has adopted a totally sculptural uh, position you know, mm-hmm. with his arm lifted and pointing upwards um, and his arm, the other arm, akimbo on his hip, um, reproducing... Uh, a moment that we have seen a bit earlier when Tazio leading Aschenbach on throughout the labyrinth of little you know, alleys in, in Venice uh, also stops for a moment and puts his arm precisely in that position and gazing at him to make sure that Aschenbach is following. This is Hermes. Hermes, if you look at some of his, um, the statues that represent this, this Greek god, uh, has precisely his arm akimbo in this very mm-hmm. position. Now, what is happening in this, um, in this sort of uh, moments when uh, uh, Aschenbach is being literally led on 
by, um, by uh, young Tadzio throughout this labyrinth of streets. You know, this is not the typical uh, image of Venice, right? These are the guts of the city. And we see garbage, uh, we see uh, shady characters that approach Aschenbach as he tries to pass by them. Uh, we see fires and smoke. This is literally the underworld. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tazio Hermes is the guide of the souls into the underworld, so he's leading him on. Mm-hmm. And until finally, until the final collapse, um, he points to mm-hmm. the realm of the ideas. So he, mm-hmm. this, this is, uh, for me, a very... Uh, a, a fairly obvious um, uh, understanding of, of the film. Um, it, it's also fairly obvious in the novella, but unfortunately it is missed by those critics that only see you know, an old pederast uh, following this, this youth. Um, it's important to remark also in this connection that at no moment, except at the moment of his imagination, when he imagines that his moral call is to break the news to the Polish family that, you know, that there's cholera and you better get the hell out of here. He thinks for a moment about doing that. That's the thing, the honorable thing to do, but he doesn't do it. At that moment in his imagination, he's rewarded by the mother turning her side away, away and letting him put his hand on his idol's head. That's the whole extent of his corporal perversion. I mean, he never imagines a sexual uh, situation. The most that he imagines in his wishful thinking is putting his hand paternally on, protectively, on his idol. He wants to preserve him alive because it's beauty on this earth. And yet, he doesn't do it. That's the moment of moral collapse. He takes into stride the fact that his idol may die, that it is mortal beauty, and the beauty has to be mortal as his friend Alfred has been saying all along. Mm. And we have, I have one more question before we open okay. questions to the audience, and that is about the last scene. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about Tazio pointing the way, mm-hmm. and it's a moment of transcendence. Right. And what struck me about that frame was that we have the unattended camera mm-hmm. there, and that's certainly not in, in Mons Novella. Could you ta- speak to... No, it is in Mons Novella. What is it in, it oh, is in Mons Novella, and it's in Mons with a little difference. In Mons Novella, because... We don't have images, it's just language. Man can create the environment. And he says that the black cloth of the, oh. of the camera is flapping in the air. This we don't see in the movie because the air is still, right? But we see the camera unattended. Um, in Man's novella, for me, it's impossible not to interpret that wind, that flapping of the cloth as the soul, the pneuma, Right, that expires, that goes out from the body of Aschenbach and that follows the direction of, that Tatsu is pointing to. Right? But in the film, we don't have that flapping of the black cloth, but no, no, nevertheless, we have the unattended camera, which means it's a subjectless camera. There's no longer a subject behind the gaze. We've been following Aschenbach's gaze all along the film. We've been ogling Tatsu through, through Aschenbach's uh, eyes, his sight. Um, we have been... Uh, we have, uh, uh, you know, uh, sort of uh, shared his scopophilia, if you want to call it that. Um, but at this moment, that's no longer possible because there's no longer a subject behind the gaze. Mm-hmm. Thank you. All right. But I'd like to just thank Professor uh, Resina for a wonderful Q and A.
And to everyone for being here, it's been a pleasure. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.